Hello, and thank you for joining us in Mapping the Zone, the newest podcast dedicated to informal discussion of the works and context of Thomas Pynchon. Uh, my name is Cody. I'm one of the co-hosts here. And today we are talking chapter two of The Crying of Lot 49. Hi, I'm Will. Hey, I'm uh, Luke. All right. Um, so, Will, you've got a um, little summarization of chapter two for us, if you want to go ahead and read that. Yeah, so this chapter begins with Oedipa telling Mucho her plans to go to San Narciso, a town near Los Angeles, to acquaint herself with Inverarity's holdings and her co-executor Metzger. He's disappointed, but she, she leaves saying not to talk to Hilarious and to take care of the plants. She rents an Impala and drives down, at first finding San Narciso fairly difficult. Suddenly, though, she has the sense of trying to read a printed circuit board, a religious instant of witnessing but not comprehending arcane meaning. A moment of compassion for her husband's search for his own in radio music, seeing without believing. She continues on into a neighborhood from the freeway. The line of escrow services and factories is extensively interrupted by a pink and barbed wire campus, the Galactronics branch of Yoyodyne Incorporated, an aerospace behemoth central to the town's economy that Inverarity had in some way helped found and still owned a large part of. It eventually fades behind more warehouses and beige businesses. Tired of the endless varieties of sameness, Oedipa pulls into Echo Courts, a motel advertised with an illuminated and softly pornographic 3D depiction of a nymph mid-flirtation. The face looks remarkably like her own. The manager, a teenager who looks ready to audition for a knockoff of a hard day's night named Miles, carries her bags to her room while singing in the style of the British invasion. Oedipa asks why, and he replies that his band, The Paranoids, had been recommended the accent by their manager. She offers to pass along a demo tape to Mucho, which Miles takes as an offer of quid pro quo, and he starts to move in. Brandishing the television antenna, Oedipa declines. Miles takes the rejection badly. He expects and receives a tip, anyway. Later that night, Metzger arrives carrying a bottle of French wine and makes a striking impression. Oedipa can't believe he's not an actor for a moment. He invites himself in and is happy to simply drink out of the bottle, since the motel had provided only one glass. Metzger starts to lay down some games, spilling his guts about his mother pushing him into acting as a child, shares supposed sexual insecurities. She calls him on it. He changes the subject, proffering that Pierce had only mentioned her to him on one occasion. She declines to hear what Inverarity told the lawyer, turns on the TV, tuned into a program that Metzger claims he starred in as Baby Igor, a war movie called Cashiered. Apparently, Baby Igor played the son of a man unjustly dishonorably discharged from the British Army who builds his own submarine, the Justine. With his son in their St. Bernard, they torpedo Turkish merchant ships. Oedipa realizes that this was all either a lie or he'd paid someone at the station to broadcast it. Metzger begins demonstrating some degree of confusion of identity between himself and his childhood role, insisting he knows what really happened. Before Oedipa can address this, she's distressed by the sudden lack of wine in their bottle. Metzger prepared reveals one of tequila, and incidentally unveils his knowledge of their of her and Inverarity's trip to Mexico. He says it had been written off in Pierce's taxes that year when she asks how he knows, and she responds with venom. Metzger proposes a wager on the outcome of the movie, happy or sad. Initially declining, Oedipa is eventually convinced to bet, but when he refuses to suggest stakes, she offers a blank check. He accepts, and French kisses her hand. Oedipa demands to hear some explanations about the movie, which seems to be airing with the reels out of order. He accepts as long as each question is tendered with a garment, which he calls Strip Botticelli. 
Oedipa accepts, then slips into the bathroom, which adjoins the closet. Metzger continues rambling about stuff the actors on screen didn't know about the real events. In the bathroom, Oedipa dresses herself with 36 additional pieces of clothing and an untold quantity of jewelry. Finally, she begins to leave the room before spying her image in the mirror, laughing so hard as to fall over, breaking the nozzle off a canister of hairspray as she went. It rockets off, bouncing and flying off walls, and Oedipa is, is stuck rolling on her mock turtle shell. Metzger comes in to save the day, only to be nearly missed by the can and dropped to the floor himself, trying to predict where it'd end up. Overwhelmed, Oedipa bites into his arm through his suit. The can shatters the mirror and a panel of frosted glass in the shower and keeps ricocheting until it eventually peters out and clatters to the floor. Miles has invited his band into Oedipa's room, plying his master key, and they have gathered at the bathroom door, gazing in with a clutch of groupies around. One of them asks if the impromptu couple were up to a, a London thing. Oedipa convinces them to leave, asking them to serenade them from outside. They come to the window and listen to a shockingly generic and soliloquacious serenade from the paranoids. Finally, the game. Oedipa pours herself some of the Jack Daniels left behind by the crowd and trades three earrings for a handful of barely informative answers about the success of baby Igor and Co.'s admission. Frustrated by this compensation, Metzger discards his coat in a demonstration of generosity. They drink some more. This continues for a while, the attorney taking the time during commercial breaks to inform her of Inverarity's stake in each successive brand. Eventually, Oedipa visits the bathroom again, so drunk she sooner assumes she can't recognize herself than remembers that the mirror is broken. Oedipa puts on a few more pieces before coming out, to find Metzger asleep with his head under the couch and naked except for the tent of boxers across his lap. She falls onto him and kisses him awake. That seeming to take the last of her energy, she lays nearly limp as he undresses her and falls in and out of sleep. She wakes to the build of a mutual orgasm, coinciding with the paranoids plugging in more guitars, and the release seems to overload the circuit. The lights go out. When they come back on, the Justine is filling with water. The dog drowns, baby Igor is shocked to death by an electrical short. By some miracle living, the father delivers a eulogy and apology declaring his split destiny from his son, expecting hell. It's implied he drowns as the end card fades in. Oedipa shouts in celebration of a bet well won. The last six lines are, You won me, Metzger smiled. What did Inverarity tell you about me? She asked finally. That you wouldn't be easy. She began to cry. Come back, said Metzger. Come on. After a while, she said, I will. And she did. A lot happens in this chapter. So I think, I think we've, we've got our work cut out for us here. Um, I mean, let's, I guess, start from the beginning. Um, I, I like the kind of immediate jump into humor with the, the kind of Beatles knockoff of, I want to kiss your feet. That one, that song title just always makes me wish that song actually existed. Cause that, that sounds like some weird owl kind of thing. And I'm, I'm hundred percent in for it. Well, that's a little personal. <laughs> no, it does. Um, it does sound exactly like a Weird Al track, though. It really does, and I'm, I, I, yeah, it's, it, and I think maybe that has to do with that time because that was, I mean, that was before, obviously before Weird Al, but I think if I'm not mistaken, that's around the time that like Doctor Demento was on the air, maybe like starting to air stuff. It still puts a smile on my face every time I read it. I, I guess before we really kind of dive into the discussion of the chapter what were your takeaways from like did you how did you feel about this particular chapter uh, i thought it was interesting that uh there's so many references to uh narcissism in the mm -hmm. chapter i mean the san narciso 
Uh, Narcisso obviously brings to mind uh, narcissism. Uh, then Echo Quartz. I want to say Echo is um, a character in the uh, Narcissus myth. Yeah, she um, falls in love with him, if I remember right. Yeah, and then um, Metzger, as an act, as a child actor turned lawyer, does seem a bit narcissistic, um, more than a bit, perhaps. And then, I mean, if you you could kind of interpret all of all of this whole chapter. I mean, going back to some stuff I talked about last week, um, the possibility of so much of this chapter being in some way fake or constructed um, just to mess with Oedipa, um, which would signify a kind of narcissism on the on the uh, part of Pierce um, in terms of, you know, he's, he's so self-centered that he, he could have created a whole town and a whole fake movie and, you know, all of, all of this stuff just to mess with his ex-girlfriend, which... Um, implies a certain amount of self-importance. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure I take it as necessarily a construction of Pierce's, but... It, it I just think, it, I think that's a possible interpretation. I don't, I don't necessarily want to die on that hill. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that's, that, it, it's absolutely possible that Pierce is like, hey, screw you for leaving me. I'm going to pay my lawyer by giving him the information and having a bootleg film produced so that he can seduce you. That that I mean that's really not out of the character of Pierce that we've seen so far. Yeah, I would I definitely agree. I think the two kind of the bigger themes that popped out in this chapter for me were you know as, as Luke was saying the narcissism of specifically Pierce, and then this is I think the chapter where the the theme of paranoia really starts to take hold. And it's a you know for anyone familiar with Pinchon like paranoia is a common uh, thematic element throughout his work and. I think this is where we really start to see that come into full focus um, with not only is, you know, as Luke mentioned, the, you know, how much of this did Pierce have a hand in, you know, did he, didn't he, you know, Oedipa even starts to question a lot of uh, the goings on of things. And, you know, there's specific mention, like she calls um, Miles a paranoid and you know, not necessarily calls him much, it kind of reinforces that idea because he kind of claimed it himself. But then she starts to kind of, you know, get a feeling of of everything that's happening. You know, you know the the too many weird things and and impossibilities kind of happening concurrently. Yeah, and I mean Miles Miles assuming that uh, Edipa is trying to get with him or, um, you know, use her husband's who's use her connection to her husband to get with him also implies a certain amount of narcissism on Miles's part because. Mm -hmm. Uh, from the way it's phrased in the book, I mean, it's it's pretty obvious that Oedipa was just trying to be nice, and then Miles takes it in a very, like, self-centered and presumptuous way. Um, and Metzger also seems to kind of, uh, even just, like, showing up with, showing up at a hotel room with liquor seems to imply a fair amount of presumption on Metzger's part. Oh, yeah, most definitely. Absolutely. Yeah, and, I, I, and Miles even has that line in 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 talking about his, you know, his his attempt to kind of get with Oedipa, where you know he uh, what Miles closed the door behind him and stood in the door, started in the doorway uh, with a shifty eye. In return for what? Moving in on her. Do you want what I think you want? This is the payola kid here, you know, like that that level of confidence in a kid who's sixteen years old and a hotel manager. 
yeah, there's a there's a huge kind of narcissistic side of him shown there. Yeah, and uh, in narcissism, you know, that it's commonly viewed as you know being so full of yourself that you can't believe that you're not great. And what it research has shown in the past, you know, 30, 50 years is that narcissism is usually a case of incredibly small ego, it's an incredibly weak sense of self and self-worth mm-hmm. reflected outward with hostility. And that is a, a certain way to interpret paranoia in general. Yeah, I mean, paranoia, you could perhaps make the argument that paranoia could be an aspect of of narcissism or that narcissism has a paranoid aspect, you know, paranoia is uh, this weird feeling of like everything is connected or, you know, people are out to get me uh, in particular, which can imply a certain amount of like self-centeredness, um, also psychosis, but mm-hmm. you know, I think you get what I'm saying. Yeah, definitely. definitely. Yeah. And also I, I, the other, you know, in mentioning paranoia and, and especially as it ties to Penjon, this is also the first time in the book that we get they with a capital T, which for those familiar with a lot of Penchon's work is that's the kind of overarching, you know, the, the, the royal they, so to speak, where the powers that be or, or whoever's, you know, running things in this case, it could be Pierce and his cohorts. And, but that's, I, I always kind of keep an eye out for when the capital they shows up in anything. It's probably yeah, the good, first good time point. that that happens in, in Pynchon's or, yeah, I don't know that it was in V. That I'm, I don't think it was. I could be. Uh, wrong, I mean, it's. But... I just, it's been a long time since I read V, but I find it hard to believe that Stencil didn't at least use they in the same yeah, way. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it could be. We'll find out. I have a sense of a reading of what happens in this chapter. I'm not gonna like just walk through it, my argument, but uh, I'm gonna ask, how do you? What What are y'all's in, interpretations of Metzger as he arrives? because he's kind of shown as gallant and goofus in the same breath. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's it it was kind of like it it was kind of character whiplash for me like you know he initially comes in and you know showing up with alcohol like Luke said that's a that's a big kind of red flag um but I you know I kind of just was like all right whatever he's you know maybe he doesn't have ill intent. He just wants to, you know, be a good, you know, not a host necessarily, but, you know, just show up and, and be able to provide something, you know, and then the whole thing with him being a child actor comes in and how his mom mistreated him. And, and you kind of like in watching the film that he, that, you know, just happens to be on TV that he was in. Um, and you kind of get the sense of like what he was put through as a child actor um, you kind of start to feel bad for him, but then as towards the end of the chapter, I, you know, it just became a complete 180. I, I just was like, this guy's a slime ball. I don't, I don't like him at all. Yeah. And he is, I think he is shown to lie. Uh, I want to say, cause he's, he's, he says that Pierce only like told her, like they only had one conversation about, right. only, and then by the end of it, it does seem pretty obvious that he does have a fair amount of insider information about Oedipa, like more than he revealed at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, well, he kind of peppers in like, you know, the more things show up on TV, like commercials for things like, oh yeah, Pierce owns that. Pierce has that. Pierce did that. Yeah. yeah and I mean, cl- it's clear they have a relationship that extends beyond the will. Yeah. And I mean, 
It is it is also a little suspicious thinking of the way TVs used to work and even the way TVs work now where like you know Edipa and Metzger aren't shown like flipping through the channels trying to trying to find something to watch you know it just seems to be like she turns on the TV and it's already on the right channel. I want to mm-hmm. say that there were a lot less channels back then like less than oh, 10 sure. maybe yeah. but it's still suspicious to me. It, I mean, it's very much the it, it in its own way is very much the TV TV where, you know, when someone in, in a movie or a TV show turns on a TV, it's always at like the right point in the news broadcast or the right part of the movie that they're going to watch or the TV show. They're like, it's always queued up just right. So, yeah, it's definitely that. So there's two things I found interesting about this chapter. They're both kind of uh, not super important. Yeah, I read I reread this book around the time when I was rewatching the last of us and there's the there's a reference to the the wine called uh oh the french boulanger yeah which comes up in the i think in the third episode of the last of us um which is just kind of weird to me that you know it's kind of a weird synergy thing um a little aside about that is that he says that he had to smuggle it um and i don't you know like french wine has never been illegal in the u.s which is another part where he kind of lies or is trying to I think he was up. trying to sell himself up. Yeah, exactly. The other thing I thought was interesting was I'm a big Beach Boys fan, and the serenade repeats the phrase Lonely Sea a bunch. And I looked it up, and that song, the Beach Boys have a song called Lonely Sea, and it's on the album Surfing USA, which would have been their first like famous album. And that, that came out in 1963, which we talked about last week is probably when this took place. But I do think, I mean, if you listen to The Lonely Sea uh, by the Beach Boys, it is kind of a slower tune. It's kind of a little bit more slow pace. It's more of a, you know, like literally a serenade, kind of like um, the song is titled. I thought it was kind of an interesting little tidbit that uh, could also like kind of inform us on when the when this is taking place, what year. I'm curious if the lyrics to it sync up with that song, the Beach Boys song. I very well could, I think, because I I did listen to the song a little bit and, you know, Lonely Sea is repeated a fair amount. And yeah, I'm not a musician, so I wouldn't really be able to tell like singing it or something. But yeah, I I totally noticed some Beach Boys influence, but I I didn't know about the song on the Lonely Sea. Um, To me, the whole serenade was like, is it impressively generic? I don't like there's no there doesn't actually seem to be any implication of love or emotion other than loneliness. It does seem to kind of fit in with Oedipa's kind of general, like, anhedonia, like, her kind of general, like, withdrawal from the world. Her general, like, um... I mean, I would call her depressed. Um, clinically depressed, I would say. Like, she does exhibit a fair amount of the, um symptoms of depression especially well i mean kind of increasingly so over the course of the book now that i think about it but even her kind of you know she kind of just like lets the stuff with metzger happen you know she's she's generally she's not a super um she doesn't have a lot of agency or control um in this book you know she keeps she seems to kind of just um later in the book she gets a little bit more she seems to be taking control of her own life a little bit more, but especially at the beginning, she just kind of seems to be floating along. And I think that's also evident at the end of the chapter too, the, the, the kind of resignation that she has after what happens happens. Yeah. This, this all kind of goes together for, I think the central, the central question of this chapter is um, kind of an ugly one. It is how consensual was the sex getting it out of the way. It is not consensual in the end. 
no, but in terms of how not. much how much does she want it in the first place? How much does she want it in the moments before falling asleep? How much would she have wanted it if she hadn't fallen asleep? All of those things are really the central mystery here. Especially, you know, when you look back at the the layering and it's presented in a in a sort of comical way when she's, you know, bundling up to the point where Metzger almost can't win his little game, but there's still an element of her interest in it up until, you know, I, I think at the end, you know, as you said, it's absolutely not consensual, you know, when the moment happens, but it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's ambiguous as to how she really felt. And I think that that ties again back into what Luke was mentioning about her, you know, possibly being depressed. Uh, you know, they're suffering from chronic depression. It's hard. It's a, it was a hard ending for me every time I've read this book a few times and it's always, that's a hard part for me to get through. Yeah. And it, something interesting I've found and please, I'm explicitly, I'm asking listeners, uh, write in comment. If we post this anywhere, tell, tell us because in my experience, people who read this book for the first time, read this as a funny rom-com scene. Mm-hmm. And then by the end of the book, when they look back at it, they start to realize just how coercive Metzger had been. Yeah, and so this is going to be me putting on my tinfoil hat a little bit. Um, but I mentioned last week that I read a self-published book of scholarship on Lot 49. Yeah, so I actually didn't pick up on this, but it's possible, and this is a bit of a spoiler, I guess, uh, but it's possible that she got pregnant from, you know, this, this, um, this, what happened with Metzger, um, and later has a, a miscarriage. The guy was trying to say that, like, her getting pregnant and then, like, Metzger and her having sex right off the bat and her getting pregnant was, like, he built this whole thing out of the Tibetan Book of the Dead and the fact that, um... In the Tibetan Book of the Dead, um, you are like a person's soul after they die is in the bardo, which is like a after death, like kind of a limbo state before you're mm-hmm. reincarnated. And uh, you're in that you're in the bardo for 49 days, according to the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which is I do think is telling because, you know, the, the 49 doesn't seem to be. um you know, it seems a little bit random in this book, the fact that it's you know, not crying of Lot 59. So that could be somewhat intentional. But he was going on and on about this this guy who, he was a professor, but it was not in English. He was like a science professor. And after he retired, he got into literary scholarship. But he was going on and on about how, like, um, her getting pregnant was supposedly, like, Pierce trying to reincarnate himself through her and through Metzger and their sex, their, them having sex. Calling it sex is also a little bit... Have we used the word rape yet? Um, no, it, but no, that's but what I'd it was. Like that it, it's what it was. Yeah, I mean, if you, yeah, if a woman or whoever falls asleep during sex and you continue, then yeah, that's obviously rape. I agree. And I do think it's telling that, you know, at the end of the chapter, you know, she cries. And that's not, it doesn't seem like to be like a long period of time after doing what they did. So, so I, I'm not, you know, uh, I'd like you to send me a, a link to that book because I'd like to yeah. read more. Um, but the, the, A, there's the, the facet of the Lot 49 having been a fairly important auction of real estate in the Pynchon family history, from what I understand. So that there's a little bit of a, there's there's some real world connection to Pynchon that would give us the name that isn't necessarily the Book of the Dead. That doesn't mean he wouldn't take influence from it, but 
that does mean that I'm hesitant to suspect that this scene ended in a pregnancy that was never mentioned explicitly and is alluded to very, very vaguely in the sense of like a psychotic episode rather than a miscarriage. Yeah, it's a bit ambiguous. I didn't I I enjoyed reading that guy's book. Uh, it's called New Close Readings of the Crying of Lot 49. Is it a full book or is it just like it a... is it's like okay. 12 it's 12 articles. Um, he does go on about uh, Pynchon uh, and Buddhism and Tibetan Buddhism and the differences between Buddhism and Tibetan Buddhism and the differences between modernism and postmodernism, he he links. He says that he goes on about how modernism uh, focused on Buddhism, and then postmodernism is more focused on Tibetan Buddhism. Which there is the the Book of the Dead uh, reference in this chapter, which the Pynchon Wiki seems to link more towards the Egyptian Book of the Dead, which I'm not as familiar with. I've read the Tibetan Book of the Dead at least twice, uh, two different translations. Him throwing in the Book of the Dead, it seems to be a bit of a non sequitur. They're talking about the uh, a map of the uh, little like private, uh, like the gated community in San Narciso. And uh, it says, so she's reminded of her look downhill this noontime, which I think is she's reminded of the of the neighborhood looking like a like a like a circuit, a circuit board. And so then it says some immediacy was there again, some promise of hierophany, hierophany, printed circuit, gently curving streets, private access to the water, Book of the Dead, which in that context, Book of the Dead is a bit of a non sequitur. It's also it reminds me of in White Noise, uh, whenever DeLillo ends a chapter uh, with a one word paragraph, uh, Panasonic. You know, it's kind of it's a bit like a tone poem or something, you know, like it's it's just meant to be evocative. Uh, but in the in the context of like literal meaning, it's it's not it, it's it scans as somewhat random. Uh, but I do think that that's kind of telling in and of itself um, that it's thrown in there in the context of like suburbia and gated communities and stuff. Yeah, he, he, I mean, he, I think he does make another reference to, I think, the Egyptian Book of the Dead later on in the, in the, in Lot 49. Um, so I, I wouldn't be surprised if the Bardo is an important, you know, tie in to the themes of the novel. That, that wouldn't surprise me at all. Yeah. And even because it, the Tibetan Book of the Dead seems to, to me, to be about like a, an in between state, um, a state of, you know, you you're not you're not reincarnated yet. You're not alive. You're not dead, really. You're in this. Your soul is kind of floating through this kind of like plane of existence that has both in the in the Western way of speaking, both like heaven and hell aspects mm -hmm. to it. Um, which I mean, maybe to make a big deal out of something that may not need to be made a big deal out of, but it does kind of seem to relate to. The book itself, where you know something that I've been focusing on more, but you can't tell. You know, it's it's you can come up with a bunch of different interpretations about this book. Um, it's like everything is uncertain. I guess it's a very like the Bardo seems to be like a place where where things are uncertain, and this whole book is kind of seems to be like there's a lot unstated, and it seems to be like the reader is meant to be uncertain, even you know like throughout the entire thing. So. Yeah, the 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 bardo is kind of the holding the the processing room for the for the work of samsara, the chain of of suffering and death and life in the universe, and so it's 
as Oedipa begins to figure herself as the the adjudicator of what's real and what's not, it does definitely start to tie into that somehow. I see where you're coming from with it, and it's something I kind of want to dive into a little bit more and and see if if there's more to that, because I, I like where you're going with it, and I'm curious to see where it could go. Yeah. But I'll kind of piggyback on on what you mentioned in that with the the mention of the comparison of the the city with a circuit board. I loved that imagery when Oedipus first driving in and she sees how it's all set up. And there's that quote in there. She looked down a slope needing to squint for the sunlight onto a vast sprawl of houses which had grown up all together like a well-tended crop from the dull brown earth. And she thought at the time she'd opened a transistor radio to replace a battery and seen her first printed circuit. The ordered swirl of houses and streets from this high angle sprang at her now with the same unexpected astonishing clarity as the circuit had. I think it's interesting, especially given the time that this book came out and you were starting to see those kind of neighborhoods pop up more and more and how it led to an increase in that kind of closer communication. Like people were closer at that point than they ever really had been. And so it allowed for information to to move more freely but also more consequentially because it becomes like a game of telephone where you, you know, information gets distorted as it goes further and further down the line, which I think is also important in terms of the book and what comes later with, you know, waste and all that kind of stuff and, and the interconnectedness of, of all of that. And I think I admit, I remember listening to books of some substance. Um, they did an episode on this book and they were talking about how Pinchon's time at, at Boeing would have kind of coincided with the earliest facets of what ended up becoming the internet and that connectivity and, and, you know, the ability to communicate over long distances like that. And I couldn't help but think about that when I, when I reread this and, and got to that part about the circuit board and, and the neighborhood and the way the, the kind of comparison of those two things. Yeah. I mean, uh, I want to say it's death is just around the corner uh, talks about, Pynchon and the uh, Bomark project, B-O-M-A-R-C. It's a it's a uh, acronym. Whenever you Google Bomark, um, at least for me, it comes up. First thing that comes up is Wikipedia, and the first paragraph talks about how it's a uh, un uh, unverified conspiracy theory. But I want to say that the general like the general summary of the Bomark project, uh, which I don't think we have confirmation that Pynchon worked on it. I don't think we have confirmation on a lot of stuff that Pynchon worked on or didn't work on. But I think the summary of the Bomark stuff, which, again, the death is just around the corner guy um, talks about is uh, the Bomark stuff was um, it was uh, like communication between nuclear missile sites. So say the say Russia launched nukes, then the Bomar project was setting up, you know, like, like it was alerting all these different nuclear sites as to like whether or not to launch or not is my understanding of it. Yeah. And um, it's, it's a little more firmly confirmed that uh, he did work on documenting the SAGE project, which was the direct um, predecessor to ARPANET and may have been the underlying technology of Bomark, whether that existed or not. Yeah, and the inherent bias gets into that too. I want to say, especially the ARPANET. Mm-hmm. And I have done some research into it, and I want to say that a lot of that stuff, the precursors to the internet. I want to say the first precursor to the internet really was like one California university professor sending a message, basically an email, um, on like a a closed like LAN 
uh, system to a professor at another California university. I want to say that's what it is. Um, it's been a while since I've done any research on that because I did it around when I was reading Inherent Vice. That's that's definitely the lore. The lore is it was like it was one of the UC schools, maybe probably Berkeley and either another UC school or Nevada sent a message to one another. But let's be honest with ourselves. We don't know. Like the military was yeah. developing ARPANET long before the public saw it. And they're, you know, there's no reason to believe whatever they've endorsed is the official story there. No, oh, yeah, you're definitely right. Um, that's one thing that gravi- that we'll get into probably with Gravity's Rainbow is uh, the military industrial complex and stuff like that, which I do think, let me, I think I wrote down the military industrial complex in my, let me have a look. Well, I mean, um, while you're looking for that, this is also, you know, the Yo-Yo Dine thing is obviously a, you know, that's obviously Boeing. Interesting uh, because, do you, I, um, there's, there's another Dine company, Rocket Dine, maybe. Oh, that's true. See, I always read it as, as kind of a thinly veiled, uh, Boeing connection to his time there, but I, you know, I could be wrong. It's just speculation. Well, so Rocket Dine was an American rocket engine design and production company headquartered in Canoga Park in the western San Fernando Valley. Ah, um, okay. So it, in this That's... particular case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's more sense. generally, I think Yo-Yo Dine is just an amalgamation of all the different aerospace giants. That's one thing, uh, just a bit of an aside, that's one thing Mad Men gets into later in, in the show's run is uh, how many rocket companies and general military industrial complex companies were in california around this time so the i found the military industrial complex thing i it was under i underlined the part about pierce i think it's i think she's quoting pierce saying that he was a founding father which i wrote in the in the margin of the military industrial complex question mark so you know is pierce a founding father of that whole that whole thing because um i i mean the military industrial complex if you think about it, I mean, I don't I'm not an expert on early American history or even uh, like the eight, the 1800s, the 19th century. Um, but I do I do know that I think the first time the military industrial complex was called that it was the first time in public, at least it was Eisenhower in like 1959 or 1960. In his farewell address, he warned warned the U.S. citizens about the strength of the military industrial complex. Um, Sounds right. Yeah, yeah, I want to. It was definitely Eisenhower who kind of popularized it. Uh, but I did. I mean, I do find it interesting that Pierce could have been a founding father of that, like that business cartel, basically. Yeah, the. I mean, the. You know, the, this stepping outside of the realm of Lot Forty Nine itself a bit, but you know, you have to think about who Major Chicklets was in Gravity's Rainbow, and how did in the space of what fifteen years. He go from ordering Slothrop to be maimed to running a multinational aerospace titan. The only explanation of that is someone like Pierce, someone who already had a lot of money, giving him a huge head start. I, I definitely think Pierce being referred to as a founding father could definitely, you know, refer to a, a military industrial complex type of situation. I think it also just refers to his grip over this entire area of the country, especially going through later in the chapter and finding out like, you know, all the times Metzger's like, oh yeah, Pierce owns that, Pierce started that, Pierce did that. I think it kind of implies that like he's kind of responsible for the development of this area and, and what it's becoming. Yeah, that's yeah, a good and, point. 
in that same sense of America. To go back to the uh, the Gravity's Rainbow thing, I did find it interesting that uh, there's a few different things, but the the part where the hairspray bottle is caroming around the bathroom, it does. Um, I think it specifies that 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 its flight is basically random, which Gravity's Rainbow gets into a lot with how random uh, the V two was, like where it landed. Mm-hmm. Um, the, what is it? The Poisson distribution. Yeah, which is is definitely, and we'll get into this when we get into Gravity's Rainbow, but that is, you know, it's basically, you know, think about if if the U.S. launched a nuclear missile and it was random where it would fall. It's pretty terrifying. Yeah. Another thing I find interesting about that is that he does get into, he talks about how, like, a a computer, like, or he says a digital machine might have computed in advance the complex web of its travel. Which I I don't I'm not an expert on computers at all, but I I'm under the impression that like a, a computer in the 1960s would not have been capable of charting a like you know like all the different like air like you know like air temperature air humidity like you know all the different variables. I'm under the impression that computers would not have been able to do that. So it is kind of cool that he and I, I do think that we have computers that could do that now. However. But it is kind of cool that he seems to be predicting the the rise in co- computing power. Yeah, I think yeah. he was definitely cued into what the capabilities that computer technology had at that time. That it maybe wasn't there, but where it could go. Yeah, and I think the slightly more not not important because it's you're absolutely right. the The computer thing is prescient, and it does show that you know this guy has seen what computers are about to do. You know, he probably wrote some documents for some self-guided missiles as early as it was in the 50s. He starts it by saying God or a digital machine. It's not about the computer being able to do it. It's about the fact that we as people are so small as to be incapable. It's, It's more of a situation of our weakness than one of computer's power. And at least that's how I read it. That's a, that's a cool, yeah, I agree. That's a cool way of thinking about it. Yeah. I may be way off base here, but I, so there's a part right before, uh, baby Igor's song, there's, uh, they're kind of, he's describing, uh, a scene in the cashiered movie and it talks about, uh, the father, son and St. Bernard and the dog sits on Periscope watch and barks if he sees anything. I, I immediately thought of Pugnax from against the day and the learned English dog from Mason and Dixon. It, but more so Pugnax and his kind of role within the chumps of chance. Um, I don't know if y'all got that vibe from that. I thought it was a silly little thing to pick up on, but I just thought it was interesting. Definitely. And I think it's it something deep in my well of memory from watching Boomerang as a very small child tells me that there was some show like Johnny Quest that had a monkey? Or was that like Space Ghost Coast to Coast in the 90s or something? <laughs> I don't know. All of those All of those shows have been parodied so many times that I'm not sure yeah. what's what at this point. Yeah, it's hard to say. I don't but know. I never really watched much Johnny Quest, but it's yeah. I know what you're talking about, and there probably was something that fell into that. But um, there's even there's even the and this is obviously way after these books came out. Maybe not after Against the Day, but you know, there's the I uh, the high school I went to. Um, Anchorman was we would always quote Anchorman to one another, and there's there's the mm-hmm. part where Ron Burgundy says, you know, like Baxter, I don't speak Spanish. Mm-hmm. To the dog, which is, you know, I mean, the dog, it's just kind of funny, like anthropomorphizing, I think is the word dogs. Yeah, yeah. Um, which has always been, it's, it's, 
That is that does seem to be a, a recurring theme with Pynchon. So why do you all think that he puts three songs in this chapter? Because that's a lot even for him. It is, and it's also the first time that we get a song. I don't know why there's three, and I don't know that they're really needed to be either. Um, as much as I love his songs, I mean, really, Miles's song is the only one that I really thought was, I don't want to say it was necessary, but it was, it was the only one that felt right to be there. The Baby Igor song, I get it. I get why it's there. Um, and then the Lonely Sea one, kind of the same thing, but it just really didn't do anything for me. Yeah, I mean, the Lonely Sea, the, the one thing that comes up for me is just, it's, it seems to be, as we were talking about earlier, like uh, a commentary on how Oedipa does seem lonely in this chapter and in, in general. Um, it does seem to be implied in the first chapter that her and Mucho are not necessarily... If they're in love, then it's not necessarily a super healthy relationship. And if I, I would argue that they're probably not in love, that it seems to be I kind of a, so. a marriage yeah, of convenience, yeah. you know? Yeah. So it does seem, and then, you know, that does that song does kind of lead into that part we were talking about where Pierce uh, takes advantage of, or not Pierce, uh, Metzger mm -hmm. takes advantage of her falling asleep and everything. It's just, I mean, it's, it could be a commentary on her depression. That's true. I think like what I liked about the Miles' song, I think it does a lot for his character in a little bit of time. Like you, you really it reinforces his narcissism. That that whole idea of like you may not think I'm the right you know person to get with, but I'm I know I'm cool. I know I'm awesome. So you know, shut up and deal with it, kind of thing. Yeah, it's kind of a it's kind of a, a sour grapes song, which is yeah. I don't I'm I'm not a huge um, rockabilly or British Invasion era fan. Is that like a a mood that was often tackled? <laughs> I don't I really don't know. I never got too much into that scene either. Um it certainly feels like it's done well enough to feel like it, but I don't know for sure. Like you know, as much I as much as I like the Beatles and I'm not a huge Beatles fan, I never I I don't recall that being anything Maybe it was in a subtle way, just more of like a, oh, you don't want to be with me, I guess I'll go over here for a while kind of thing. That that song, the lyrics, I do think it could be like I've I've done some delving into uh, 1960s uh, garage rock music, um, which I think would be that movement, I think, is more mid 60s to late 60s. I want to say the garage rock. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, I don't think it's I don't think it's as early as 1963. And it's definitely. It didn't have a lot to do. It maybe was even a reaction against the British invasion. You know, it seems to be a pretty American thing. But for some reason, the the lyrics that I'm looking over right now, like there's that pretty famous garage rock song, 96 Tears. And it does seem to be like it does seem like it is kind of like that self-conscious coolness of of garage rock and maybe even punk rock later on where it's kind of like, you know, I'm cool and I know it. So if you don't think I'm cool, like, fuck you. Type yeah. of thing. Well, and, and the Stones did have a certain degree of that that braggadocio compared to the Beatles, yeah. at least. Stones for sure did, yeah. A lot more of an edge to them, yeah. And I'm I'm trying to think about how like other lyrics later on that were similar to that in any of their songs, but I don't recall. Um the later on in like chapter whatever, whenever they're at Fangoso Lagoons. No, no, sorry, after that, when Metzger has run away with the drummer's girlfriend he mm -hmm. writes a song that is in a similar tone there that is you know more of a direct 
mockery oh, of and stuff. I know. That's like right at, towards the end of the book, like in the last chapter, I think. Something back there. The last three yeah. together for me. Yeah. I think it's, I remember that now. Speaking of that part with Metzger, I do. I I am trying to find it right now, but I do think doesn't Metzger like offer the kids like alcohol or get ready for them to drink with them or something? Yeah, he he shares um, what they call tequila sours. Yeah, um, with them and also, but he is also you know they they hand him like a joint and stuff. They uh, well, they trade. left a bottle of Jack Daniels with them too. They. Yeah. But um, it does it does seem like Metzger is trying to get them in the party with him and Edipa, which is oh, kind of maybe definitely. a bit of a bit of foreshadowing oh, for his later. Where? Where? I want to say he does. Um, Did he invite him in? Oh no, 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 no. I think it was Edipa that invited him in. Uh, uh hold on. Wait, we're talking about this chapter, right? This chapter, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't think Edipa Edipa jokingly says that they might come out to the pool with them after they're done with the movie and implied sex. I don't think anyone invites them in. Okay, hey, y'all might I'm be right. Really I, I don't know that. where I got that. Well, he he absolutely does share liquor with them later in the book. That's yeah. not. Yeah. Oh part. no, he asked he asked them to play strip Botticelli with him. Does he? He says Metzger helped her stagger to her feet. Anyone for strip Botticelli? Which he yeah. and Edipa are already oh. playing it. So that's what I was thinking of. Yeah. Which is kind of worse than what I was talking about, if you think about it. Yeah. But... Wait, doesn't that happen after she's already kind of tricked them all to leave? I think there might be, yeah, because they're supposed to... It's right the paranoids... after they say they're going to be in the pool. Yeah, so Metzger is maybe trying to get them to stick around or something, I don't know. I just interpreted that as a, a you know, jokingly suave kind of like, hey, anyone up to play the game the two of us already agreed to play? I didn't. I didn't read it in read it in that way. I do think it can be maybe interpreted as foreshadowing for his later, um, his later creepiness. I feel like we've done a disservice. You guys both had some compliments given to the other songs. I feel like I just need to to praise Sunar Scopes Periscopal Lame for Constantinople. That is probably the only reason the song is in the the Baby Igor song is in the book. That line I did like. That's uh, that's it though. No? Please continue. <laughs> no, so right. So when I was when I was looking for that part that that Luke found about Metzger offering to play strip Botticelli, um, that's another time where it comes up that uh, there like a commercial comes up for a Turkish bath in downtown San Narciso, and he says Inver already owned that too. Did you know that? Um, and then they exchange a few more words, and and he says uh, Adipa says, "What the hell didn't he own?" Metzger cocked an eyebrow at her. You tell me. I thought that was a really interesting, like Metzger giving away a little bit of the game, but knowing that Oedipa wasn't going to catch on. Well, I I read it as more of a, are you owned by him too? Yeah, which I think could be taken, like, as is she owned by him? And then also is Metzger owned by him? It could be taken either yeah. way, perhaps. Um, one thing I found interesting on that page too, which is another example of Pitchin's absurdity, but their drummer had set up precariously on the diving board. <laughs> the diving board, yeah. Which, like, if he's doing the kick drum or, like, you know, it's, it's going to be bouncing oh. up and down, you would think. Like, you know I can what I'm tell saying? you, as a, as a drummer, that that scene makes me nervous. Like, yeah. Like, just, like the, there are hard boards, image. but that's, I mean, it is ridiculous. It's a weird oh, mental man. image, man. It really is. I find it pretty, uh, it lends credence to the theory 
either that you know Pierce arranged all of this or Metzger knew enough to arrange all of this for himself. That that seriously, there is almost there are almost no answers that Metzger gives Oedipa. He gives yes and no answers to stuff about the movie, and mm-hmm. other than that, he almost never seriously responds to any query that she has. I have to wonder, like, going back to the whole child, him being a child actor thing, and then, you know, that bit about lawyers being actors, I thought was great. I really loved that. Do you, like, how much of his backstory do you really buy? Like, do you really think that he was a child actor, or do you kind of get the feeling that this is all just an elaborate setup? I mean, it could be interpreted that he's he's acting that he's not even a lawyer, and that he's acting like he's one right. in this scene. Like you know, we have no proof that he is one. I don't and know. We have no I proof did... that it's him in, in yeah. the movie. Like we're just taking his word for it because, you know, at that time there's no you know obviously there's no internet. You can't look him up and verify his name on there. Well, yeah, there, and I mean there is the it, I, I I'm I'm likely to think that he probably was a child actor and probably is a lawyer it seems reckless to have a non-lawyer execute your will um and but i only really believe that he was a child actor because specifically he comes into the bathroom with edipa fallen on the ground and says something in his baby igor voice oh that yeah i remember yeah oh for pete's sake or something (laughs) And it, yeah, there is, um, I wrote PTSD in the margin, but there's the part where there came from the TV set, a terrific explosion. And then mines cried Metzger covering his head and rolling away from her, which I mean, could speak to the fact that he's acting, but it could also speak to the fact, you know, like, I don't, it's just something that, um, I feel like is kind of assumed at this point, but child being an actor as a child does seem you can usually assume that 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 has somehow um messed up the person when they reach adulthood i i you could probably find exceptions to that rule but i think you all know what i'm talking about where often famous child actors seem to struggle with especially in young adulthood well and there's a there's a particular trope which i don't know if i i should have looked it up on tv tropes or something but there is a trope which has been used extensively since the 60s and i don't know if it predates this book of the child actor growing up and wanting to reprise like somehow believing that he is one of the roles he played and the most recent example of that i can think of is steven yun in um nope last year oh uh, yeah i actually just watched that on friday oh cool yeah i loved it but yeah it's a good movie but that 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 specifically like confusing yourself for a character you played when you were a child is a is a direct trope and i don't know if there are any real examples of that maybe peter sellers but that's barely it's more of a de- dissociative identity disorder than like a, a mm. specific association with the role um, but th- this might be the first instance of that trope and uh, speaking of tropes and stuff i the pension wiki we've kind of already been over this a little bit the pension wiki points out that comparing a uh, suburban neighborhood or a like urban urban or suburban sprawl to a printed circuit it, uh the pension wiki says this description is probably one of if not the first time that that comparison has been set down in american fiction which i think is interesting, interesting. yeah that makes sense do y'all think she actually like bit into metzger do you think that was just <laughs> illustrious description because there's never they never mention it again like was it, it just it doesn't come up again, but I don't, I really don't know. Like, and like, why did she 
do it? Was it just drunken overwhelmedness, just biting? I mean, it could it could be flirting, you know. I don't that kind of stuff. I mean, it flirting or foreplay or something. That's how it, I interpreted it. It almost came off a little bit that way to me as well. I, one thing I had forgotten until rereading this chapter was Oedipa's age, or at least what we can take for it, is that she's 28. Yeah, that's, um, that's revealed in this chapter, yeah. Yeah, and I, I don't know that we ever know how old Metzger is, but he's obviously older. If he was a child actor uh, in a movie that came out long ago enough to be on TV at that point. He, well, does, it, he no. does scan is younger than 28 to me, but I don't know. He he's he's probably older just because he's a lawyer, but he's and an estate lawyer for a billionaire. But also, you know, it was a post-war movie. It it was made in the late 40s, early 50s at the latest. So he might have been 10. Yeah, I mean, if it's if it's uh, 1963, let me do the math. He would be late 40s. He would have been born in like 1940. Or I mean, I I guess he could have been like as old as like 12 or even. A little bit older than that. I mean, it's baby Igor, but they usually know, I mean, they usually got older kids to play younger kids. Yeah, anyway. no, you're right. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I I, I don't want to disagree with you too much, but I mean, it is a movie about World War One. There's a reference. I, is it in this chapter to to movies in the 30s with like the saxophone? Um, oh wait, was was it World War One? Am I just did I get confused? Yeah, the, the, it is. Yeah, it is. Oh, yeah, the, okay. The the campaign that it's about the the invasion of like Gallipoli. Or however you say it, that is World War One. Yeah, there and there is a reference to '30s style like movie soundtracks. Yeah, so he could be even he could be even older than could be older than I was saying definitely. Which I and this is to go back to Gravity's Rainbow, but I guess I've heard that um, there's a lot of references to 1930s and 1940s uh, movies in Gravity's Rainbow. I mean, there's there's some obvious references that I've seen. People mention on the subreddit and in general, like to German film from that time. But I do think I've heard that like there's you know, like references to like made for TV movies from around that time and stuff that there's a lot of like if you really like tear it apart and actually know anything about TV and movies from that time that you'll find a lot of a lot of references. Yeah, uh, from what I understand, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari is very important both to this book and Gravity's Rainbow. And then I just watched Metropolis a couple of weeks ago. Ooh, I love that movie. It was fantastic. I thought so, at least. Um, and it, it, I can totally see how that influenced him, and not just by proxy via Kubrick. Well, I think Justine, while it's you know supposedly the name of the fictional dead mother, could and probably is given the content of sadomasochism in Pynchon's works in general, a reference to Marquis de Sade. Can you elaborate on that a little? No, there's nothing more than I just think oh, know, okay. he might have thrown that in there in the same way he you know, names a later character Genghis Cohen, just a false flag of information. That's one, thing I, one thing I thought was interesting was it's, it's Fangoso Lagoons, and it's a housing development, which then seems to play into... Um, Inherent Vice and Inherent Vice being about real estate in the L.A. area and the Southern California area and based around a, a business cartel um, called the Golden Fang it does seem to be like kind of a, a uh, I mean, I think Inherent Vice is kind of a reference back to Fangoso Lagoons. Definitely. I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm not sure whether Fangoso is specifically 
particularly resonant in that book, but yeah. I always find it interesting to kind of connect the the dots between all of his his work and I, I have to wonder how much of it is was intentional and how much of it is he just kind of went back and was like I like that idea I like that name I like that concept I'm going to reuse that or bring that back into the fold in in this book and it is interesting because people seem to draw a line between the movie Chinatown and Inherent Vice but I think Grang a Law 49 came out before uh, before Chinatown um yeah, Chinatown so Pen- was like 1974, I think. I think you're right. Yeah, something like that. And Pynchon's, so Pynchon's obsession with Southern California real estate would have predated Chinatown, which is interesting. Uh, just a note, fangoso in Italian means something along the lines of muddy or slimy. So there's just some, some good irony there in a luxury housing development around a clear blue artificial lake full of stolen yeah. treasures from around the world that's just, you know, called Muddy Lake. <laughs> there's got to be something between the the turkish baths and the turkish you know warfare on screen but i don't have any clue well the other thing i was thinking too when i when i made the connection with the san narciso and narcissus and the nymph and all that was if i remember correctly in in greek mythology i should ask my son because he knows a lot about greek mythology more than i do i if i'm not mistaken the the nymphs in greek mythology tended to congregate around bodies of water and most of the reference we get to um really the only reference we get to the nymph in here there's a lot of mentions of pools and and still bodies of water uh in this chapter as well yeah i can do a quick rundown of the myth of narcissus and echo just to, you know someone please correct me if i'm wrong because this is from memory um but basically a naiad which is a, a water nymph named echo um, was viewed as in, like the most beautiful of her sisters or something. She sang beautifully. She she was creative and ambitious, which is weird for a nymph. Um, and one day she sees Narcissus walking through the forest. Um, and I, I can't remember why she got in hot water with some goddess who was already... With Hera. I think it was Hera. Hera. That, that sounds yeah. right, yeah. Who was already interested in Narcissus. And when... And so Hera curses her to never be able to speak her own voice so mm. that she can't um, allure Narcissus into, you know, her yeah. Echo's arms. And so Narcissus is out going for a forest stroll one day when he hear, or when he wanders over to look at a flower and then sees his reflection in the river. And underneath the surface and hidden from his view because he can't expose him herself, um... She can't expose herself. Um, Echo is just trying to accent his uh, visage so that he keeps looking in the water. And he tries, like, hello, hello, is anyone there? And she can only copy it. And so he falls in love with this thing, which is his own voice being reflected back at him from someone who is enraptured by his beauty and dies and becomes another flower. This is part of what I love about Pension is I always end up going down these rabbit holes of learning weird things and i love it do we want to do quotes does anybody have a particular quote that really stuck out i really love the um the image for my ebook the second page was probably something like third or fourth page she, she's she's driven by yo-yo dine and then oedipa resolved to 
pull into the next motel she saw, however ugly, stillness and four walls having at some point become preferable to this illusion of speed, freedom, wind in your hair, unreeling landscape. It wasn't. What the road really was, she fancied, was this hypodermic needle, inserted somewhere in, ahead into the vein of a freeway, a vein nourishing the mainliner L.A., keeping it happy, coherent, protected from pain, or whatever passes with the city for pain. But were Oedipus some single melted crystal of urban horse, L.A. really would be no less turned on for her absence. That's exactly the same quote that I had, I had grabbed, too. I love that part. That was the, when I first read this book, that was the the moment where I was like, holy shit, this guy is a genius. Yeah, yeah. I I think I already kind of went over some of my favorite quotes. Um, one One I liked... Uh, was the part about the sick dick and the Volkswagens. Uh, I mean, Volkswagen is yet another reference to Germany, uh, which seems to, especially this book in Gravity's Rainbow, seem to have a lot of, especially Gravity's Rainbow, have a lot of references to Germany. But it says an English group he was fond of at the time, but did not believe in, uh, which I, I found the distinction between, you know, like enjoying, enjoying someone's music and thinking they're going to make it musically uh, as like a career, like the difference between the two. Mm. Um, you know, I've I've been friends with there's two different bands in the past like ten years, uh, twelve years, fifteen years that I've been uh, gone to a lot, like local bands that I've gotten to know them as people and gone to a lot of their shows and kind of I call myself a groupie, which seems to imply stuff um, <laughs> that is not true. But I think you get what I'm saying. Like I, I was a pretty big yeah. fan of of the two of them, two different bands. And um, but I had I had no belief that they would ever sign a, a major label deal. You know what I'm saying? Where you, yeah. like there's a difference between enjoying someone's music and thinking that they're going to get famous from the music, which this is a bit of an aside. But the the band that I was a big groupie groupie for in my uh, late teens, early 20s, uh, the guitarist for that has actually made a career for himself in country music. Um, hmm. And he's he, oh. he tours and stuff, but. For me, I have one more quote that I really liked, um, and it was, it's on, in my edition, it's on page 20. This is, it's it's right after the, the commercial for Fangos and Lagoons, um, and uh, it says, One of Inverarity's interests, Metzger noted, it was to be laced by canals with private landings for powerboats, a floating social hall in the middle of an artificial lake, at the bottom of which laid restored galleons imported from the Bahamas, Atlantean fragments of columns and friezes from the, for, from the Canaries, Real human skeletons from Italy, giant clamshells from Indonesia, all for the entertainment of scuba enthusiasts. I I took that as an interesting way of looking at a city and the people in it as just being fish in an aquarium, where they're just kind of trapped in this area that they really have no way of getting out of, but you can satiate and satisfy them if you just put enough random shit in there that they can be entertained with. And they won't complain. They'll just be happy and live their little lives swimming around and not really wonder about anything or do anything. Yeah, there's there's a few different thing that things that make me think of. I mean, on Reddit, you'll see every every like week or two, maybe every month, there will be a, a post about some neighborhood that's like that, where you can like get around by boat or jet ski or something in the Netherlands or in America, I, I do kind of have to assume that Pynchon didn't come up with the idea for that kind of neighborhood. It does. I'm, I'm really into Ballard, JG Ballard and uh, Ballard does, especially later in his career, focus a lot on um, 
self-contained communities and uh like gated communities um and even in high rise which came out in the 70s uh high rise is basically about like a a apartment apartment building apartment complex it's all one building where like you you never have to leave the complex like ever you can just live there uh grocery shop there like shop for furniture shop for clothes all within the complex which um is an interesting concept um and one that I think was a bigger deal in the 60s and 70s than it is today, um, especially in terms of like, uh, like architects coming up with that kind of community and stuff. I I think, I think uh, I think there is the like that was more of a yeah like I said it's more of a thing in the 60s and 70s. Um, I think I've been to I think there's a, a apartment building in Chicago that was like that that I want to say I heard of heard about whenever I went to Chicago a few years ago. Um, but I I do think that kind of like little tidbit from from history is is interesting just to think yeah, about yeah I, I just i viewed it i didn't think about it so much as the the entrapment side of things although that's clearly there um it's it's to me it's more of just kind of a mockery of how at that point in time these housing developments were coming up promising more and more and more and more and at the same time there was this i think there was a some degree of fetishization of Europe, especially, you know, after most cities had re rebuilt to, for the most part, post-war in the sixties. And I, I just viewed Fangoso lagoons as like what a rich yuppie in California thinks of as what it's like to live in Venice. That's a good point. I didn't link it to Venice. And I mean, Venice does come up, um it's a pretty significant part of against the day hap happens in venice i want to say like the like a climactic part of like some subplot with the chums of chance like uh fighting yeah. another airship yeah. i think that happens in venice right yeah another quote that i liked was i wrote i wrote uh, let me find it i wrote vampiric in the in the margin because it's uh it's uh metzger talks about how his mom was really out to cashier me like a piece of beef on the sink. Uh, she wanted me drained in white, um, which can kind of speak to Metzger's. Metzger does have some perhaps vampiric qualities um, in terms of sucking the life out of people. Oh, for sure. Um, and I, I think it's it's just an interesting, an interesting visual image of a little boy, like you know, being drained of his of his bodily fluids, his blood and stuff. Um, I, I think that's what kosher means: is to render something kosher. Yeah, uh, like, yeah, and there there are just two things that link into that. A Metzger in German literally just means butcher, um, but also I I think that's supposed to be kind of an indication that Metzger is Jewish, a German Jew. Yeah, it's a good point, and I I want to say um, this came up in my research for this book. I forget where it might have been in the um, the like guide to Crying Forty Nine. It may have come up in the in the Pension Wiki as well. Um, but there was in Germany, um, there was a, I forget exactly all that it was, but there was a, uh, a link between butchers and, uh, the postal service, like the, like butchers had like their own postal service or like whenever they went from town to town, they were supposed to like carry, uh, letters or something. Um, I'll have to kind of maybe refresh myself on that, but there is a relation 
between the the Tristero type stuff that we get into later in the book and uh, butchers in Europe and there being like a, a network of, of mail going around. So I actually, I just looked it up. There's, there's something on the Britannica.com website that talks about butcher post. And it just says, it, there's really nothing more than this. It just says among these was a so-called butcher post, Metzger post, which was able to combine the carrying of letters with the constant traveling that made the, that the trade required. Yeah, so think, and it, it's it, and that's it's it's called Metzger Post, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is interesting. Which obviously links Metzger with the even even. I mean, he's obviously involved. Would have to be involved in the conspiracy, but oh, it, it does kind yeah. of deepen that connection. Yeah. How about I um, I bring up a couple of quotes that I hate just to contrast? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's one sentence. Just it's just a little bit before the cashering talk. She knew she looked pretty good. I understand that some people don't agree with me, but it just reads like a what twenty-eight year old, twenty-seven year old Thomas Pynchon, just kind of working out some of his fantasies. Like between that and then the you know I'm not going to read it because I just don't like it that much is the the simultaneous (laughs) climax. Moment. Yeah, that's yeah. just like a guy in his late twenties being horny. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's that. There's that a Hollywood movie like We Came Together with Amy Poehler or whatever, where they they make fun of that whole thing. And um, at the risk of outing myself, I mean, I've I've written, you know, I've I've written like some stuff with um female characters having a specific outfit that would have been a reference to a woman I know, which is, is pretty cringe. Um, if you think about it, but it, it would surprise me if that's not what it was, you know, Pynchon is probably throwing some stuff in there that is meant to be him kind of hitting on some woman he knows, uh, through the book. I would be surprised if it wasn't, I mean, we'll never figure that out. Cause obviously yeah. we were, we were, we're not in, we haven't been in the room with Pynchon for his whole life, but I do think that writers do that. Yeah, and that that's not the issue, I guess, for me at least. I, I I wouldn't call that, you know, pathetic or anything. It's just you know, you you write literally what you know. You've seen someone in an outfit, or whatever. It's it's just literally the phrasing of "she knew she looked good" that really pisses me off. <laughs> yeah, and it it does go back to the narcissism too. I think. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you're it right. Does. I hadn't thought about that. It does. I just I think I I I I see where you're coming from with it. Well, uh, it's. I, I think I see both sides where I see what he's getting at, what he's trying to say. I just don't think it's said well. Yeah, I mean, in every other part of like delving into how Oedipa thinks about herself, we get some grand allegory or metaphor rooted in like ancient folklore or something. And then in this case, it's just she knew she looked good. It's out of mm-hmm. place. It doesn't sound like Oedipa. I don't know. It's weird. But at the same time, you know, it's salient for that reason. Like, what? Why does it matter that she knows she looks good? Yeah. How do you feel like overall after we've kind of talked about it? Like, what were your overall thoughts on the chapter itself and and the book up to this point? Obviously, we've all read it before, but you know how 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 are you feeling at this point? Uh, I I do think we're kind of still in the rising action section. I mean, there's parts in the first chapter that I would say are really interesting and do a good job of like developing the characters. It's something we talked about last week, but 
know, there's so much time spent on Mucho Moss in the first chapter, and he's he's a pretty minor character. The book wouldn't I don't think the book would lose that much if he was just kind of a faceless uh husband who was never really detailed. But I mean it's we're still in the rising action. It it is interesting. I mean, there's the there's the paragraph, you know, the whole the whole this is the whole book in, in one phrase, you know, either he made up the whole thing at mm-hmm. a thought suddenly, or he, you know, it goes into he bribed the engineer. Like, you know, it's it's all part of a plot, an elaborate seduction plot, oh Metzger, you know, like that's the whole book in, in a paragraph. Cause I, I don't think I mean thinking about the later chapters, it's as somebody who who has you know gotten drunk or a little bit drunk and wandered around a foreign city, um, like some of the later chapters, I just find more evocative and more interesting on a on a sentence by sentence level where you're kind of I was like right there with the the narrator. Um, these first two chapters are a bit meandering, um, and not necessarily like I wouldn't call them super tight. You know, like I mean. Will was talking about that the she knew she looked pretty good, which you know it doesn't need to be in there. And there is stuff in the later chapters where I there's paragraphs and paragraphs where I would argue that pretty much all of it needs to be in there. But I mean, it's still I I don't know. I mean, it's it's it, I remember the first time I was reading it, I was you know super interested and very very like interested in all the sides and stuff. I do think it does a good job of of leading into. Uh, what's to come in these first two chapters. Yeah, I, I can remember the first time I read it. And really, I mean, each each of the subsequent times I've read it as well, this is the chapter that kind of really, the book has kind of really sunk its hooks into me because of the, you know, the the ramping up of the paranoia and the the start of, you know, questioning everything and how much of this is really happening and how much of it is set up. And, but at the same time, it's also a really bleak ending, which, you know, is not unusual for Pinchon, especially at this time, because Gravity's Rainbow had a lot of that. I mean, a lot of his early stuff was a lot more bleak than a lot of his later stuff. But this one, you know, just that, that ending of chapter two, I almost never like it was hard for me to end on this one and not keep going forward. Um, just because I that the ending of this chapter is just so uncomfortable. I usually just want to keep going forward just to put it past it. Um, but I, I mean, I, I like it. I think it's a good chapter. It does what it needs to do as far as moving the plot forward and everything. I do think it's interesting that we don't get uh, Oedipus' feelings on uh, the sexual assault at the end, where it seems to be kind of deliberately like um, she maybe is already not wanting to think about it or is already kind of just pushing it away, you know, which I do yeah. think is a can be a pretty common response to trauma is just to not examine it, to stick it in a box. Exactly. And, and I think that comes up again and against the day with, uh, was it Lake? Yeah. Um, that, you know, by the end of the book, we kind of understand that like, she just like what happened was awful and she knew it was awful, but she didn't want to keep reliving it. She just wanted to move on with her life and be done with it. So I, I guess this brings me to the point where I'm going to raise a question. Um, is it, why is she crying in the last moments? Is it because of the assault? Is it because she realizes it was an assault? Was she fine with it as long as she didn't know that Metzger, on his way to the motel that day, had been planning on ending up in her pants? Is it she's crying just because she misses Pierce and Metzger reminded 
her of that. All of like all of these seem like valid readings to me. Yeah. Yeah, I do think that that Metzger is saying repeating that Pierce said that she wouldn't be easy does seem to imply that the seduction was part of the plan. Mm-hmm. Um and then that leads right into her crying which could could speak to the fact that you know like the them getting together because i do think that she she consents during the foreplay i mean you can't consent when you're asleep i want to you know like i think we all we all agree on that yeah but i you know like i don't i i think you know it does kind of speak to the fact that um she might have been like legitimately seduced and legitimately starting to have feelings for metzger and then metzger kind of seems to imply to her that she's just it was just like a challenge he was looking to overcome or something mm-hmm. like that you know like it does seem to she like that that the fact that pierce said that she wouldn't be easy and that they ended up hooking up seems to be seems to kind of paint metzger as, as pretty heartless and emotionless yeah i i read it the exact same way i th- I think it was that she understand you know understanding what happened that it wasn't consensual but there were still some feeling going into it and then yeah and then he just completely just knocks her down and and just you know that whole kind of like you were nothing this was just a challenge and i won kind of thing is just like one of the most awful things that you like it it's a really just disgusting example of adding insult to injury at that point yeah because regardless of the morality of it there are there are people who have been in situations that look like, you know, her and Metzger's sexual Congress that is not, that they don't take it as dramatic. It's it, it, and not to say that they should or they shouldn't, but it's just, they don't conceptualize it that way, whether because they trust the person or whatever. There are, there's totally a world in which she doesn't care about that loss of consent in the moments before sex because she did fully intend to consent but it's just a like you said it's a horrible thing to say yeah Yeah. and i do think that one thing that can be lost uh, in this book is that this book is basically a book about the grieving process um, and about death and how it and how how the death of a loved one can affect you um so it, it does seem to make sense that the chapter ending and that the book itself is pretty dark but i i think that you can kind of lose sight of that pretty easily with this book with all of the absurdity and all the little jokes and you know what i'm mm-hmm. saying like there's it is kind of i don't want to say all over the place because it's, it's very it's a very pinching thing to to kind of do this whole like laugh to keep from crying thing I think oh, that, yeah. that, that comes up a lot in pinching so yeah. um i i do want to invite listeners to um write in with their interpretation not only of that part in particular but uh, of everything that we've talked about i I really kind of want to get an idea of how other people are taking all of this in and and what they're getting out of it something i just connected with what you just said luke um the moment where we see fangosa lagoons and uh paragraph ends with printed circuit gently curving streets private access to the water book of the dead the first sentence is one of Inverarity's interests, Metzger noted. Is it just supposed to be the book of that dead guy generalized as kind of a tongue-in-cheek reference? Hmm. I mean, I just now thought of this, but a will 
especially a will that's going to be pretty long and complicated like piercing pierces would be a book of the dead like a literal yeah book of the dead yeah um but just just to answer your question i i guess cody i don't like this chapter very much i think it's a good way to segue i suppose from chapter one into the world of Oedipa just kind of losing it and everything mm-hmm. around her seeming to turn inward and away at the same time um but i do not like you said i don't like this chapter the the rape scene is horrible um and reading through it knowing the power that pierce had knowing the power that metzger had in those moments really makes the whole thing nauseating for me um, it's still really beautifully written in many places and there are plenty of points at which i laugh but it's it's probably my least favorite of the chat of the book just because it's so disgusting that's yeah that's absolutely it, fair it does end on a very sour note yeah it does yeah like you can sit there and just feel every single lie Metzger says every single time that Oedipa tries to put up a boundary, then he steamrolls it. It's just yep. it's tragic. Yeah. What do you think is the most pinch on part of the chapter? Um, so for, I've been kind of raring to go with this one, but a band being called the Paranoids, like that's 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 literally <laughs> yep. like the, the most yeah. pinch in band name that you can come up with. Like that's and it's two words, you know, it's not some long like blah 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 and the blah 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 it's just the paranoids which i mean anyone who's read any pension knows that paranoia is pretty much the central unifying theme i would say for all of his works um and you can't get more pension than that yeah for sure i think for me it was the the circuit board uh comparison not only in its uh imagery but in, in just in the way it was written i thought it was very beautifully done and it was a good example of his prose. And um, yeah, I've already, we already went over that quote, so I don't want to reread it. But that's, that was, to me, the, the most pinching part. Until Luke mentioned the, the paranoids, I think that might be, that probably is the most pinching part of the chapter. Yeah, that's pretty close. But I, I had in mind the, you know, all, both those ideas, but also the um, crystal of urban horse scene, as mm. well as... Uh, the the entire the, the massive paragraph where Edifa walks into the bathroom and quickly undressed and began putting on as much as she All could the layers. of the clothing she brought with her six pairs of panties and assorted yeah. colors girdle three pairs of nylons three brassiers two pairs stretched slacks four half slips one black sheath two summer dresses half dozen a line skirts three sweaters two blouses quilted wrapper baby blue peignoir and orlan mumu and it's just like, why the hell did she bring all of that? Right. For what's essentially like a brief road trip. To Southern California. Yeah. Thing to kind of build on that, that some single melted crystal of urban horse, you know, crystal. As someone who's really into Breaking Bad, you know, crystal makes me think of crystal meth. Uh, horse is uh, apparently, according to the Pension Wiki, uh, could be a reference to heroin. Yeah, um, that's a pretty yeah, that- there's hypodermic needle and then uh, a few phrases later into the vein. And then at the end of that paragraph, it says turned on, which would have been a, a reference to doing drugs back then. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is a pretty druggy little section of the of the chapter. Yeah, that that whole thing that right there next to, I suppose, actually, the the Herrero chapter and the nose job chapter in V are really the, in, the inciting points for pensions anti-urban crusade 
he really seems to think of them as things which use human life as fuel for production that wear them out and spit them back into the suburbs. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and and you know heroin's a pretty damn good comparison for that. And that yeah. this was this book was written way back in the day when when you bought heroin, it was actually crystals. It wasn't a weird glob of tar or random mm-hmm. powder. All right. Well, um, do y'all have any final thoughts or anything that you wanted to bring up before we end it? Uh, I just appreciate the the pun of cashier on cashiered, mm-hmm. where Oedipus just goes about you and your mother. But that's it. Yeah. Chapter three is next week, and it's a long one, so um, we will have a lot to talk about. Unless I don't know, we might need, we might even want to talk about splitting it up into two parts because it's thirty-five pages in my edition. Yeah, and I mean, it'll just depend on how much uh, we want to tear apart the. Pl- it's the one with the play, right? Yeah, I might yeah. want to. It might be best if, like, we do a bonus episode just explaining the play because I feel like <laughs> the play is something that is completely intractable for most first-time readers, but is either, depending on your interpretation of the whole book, crucial and important to the story of how the CIA assassinated JFK, or mm. it's, if you ask me, just a really, it's really dense with a lot of humor. That's yeah, I think that's a yeah. We're we're gonna have to talk about that because. That part is one that I always have intended to really go further into and really look into, but I, I just haven't ever given myself the time to do it. So now I'll, I don't have an excuse not to do it. Um, so we'll talk about that. Yeah, we, I, I think maybe splitting it up might be a good idea and, or just at least doing that bonus episode that you talked about. Yeah, I've, I've like I said, my last read through of it, I, I feel like I understand the play now and I truly understand how ridiculous and stupid it is and how <laughs> it might just be a joke that Pynchon put in put it in there in the first place to make people figure it out. I mean, it would be in line with with his style for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, please please feel free to send us an email, uh, mappingthezonepod at gmail dot com. Um, we really would like to hear you know y'all's thoughts and feedback, and I think bringing on different points of view is is important, especially for. Pinch on. Send questions if you have them about chapters one and two. Send questions about chapter three so we can talk about them um, when we do chapter three. We will see everyone next week. Bye. Alrighty, see y'all.